the morning about break of day. That's when my baby went away. Trying and clean don't do me no good. Come back, baby, wish you would. Welcome to Personal Stories of St. James's. My name is the Reverend Julia Matayana Friedman, and I am excited to bring our guest to you today. Without further ado, here is our conversation. Hi, JT. <laughs> Hi, Julia. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time to be with us here on Personal Stories. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I thought we could start off with JT. If you could just introduce yourself for our audience and say what your role is at St. James's and maybe tell us a little bit about how you found St. James's. Sure thing. <clears throat> so I'm JT Minor and I'm the food pantry coordinator for uh, on staff at St. James's. Uh, which just means that I deal with all things food pantry related. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've always been aware of St. James's as a community. You know, I grew up um, in Belmont uh, and both my parents are priests and I have always been very vocal with my sister and I just about the various ins and outs of their diocese relations. Uh, so, um, and I think I had met um, Holly Antolini a few times uh, when she was um, the, the priest uh, at St. James's. Um, but it's really, it was just from, um, I saw an Indeed post <laughs> uh, that was that was asking for, for, for applicants for, for my position. And uh, I was at a space where I was reflecting about uh, food ministry and about uh, food justice um, and thought that it sounded right up my alley and uh, and ended up being that uh, St. James has chose me for that position and, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, we're super glad to have you. Um, what, is there, is there something else in your life that's like centered around food? I mean, what, what sort of brought you to food specifically? Yeah, so I've been working um, in the restaurant industry uh, for about three years now. <clears throat> Um, and was active um, in other congregations before that uh, in uh, homeless ministry uh, in relation to food. Um, but yeah, my main, my main relationship with food is through the work that I do as a bartender. Um, so I work full time at a restaurant called Ravello in, uh, it's right on the Belmont Watertown line, but it's about like a two minutes walk for me, which is a fantastic commute. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's always been you know, food as just a topic of uh, like human connection and, and expression has always been something that I've just been absolutely fascinated with from a very young age. I would just like devour um, all kinds of documentaries, food documentaries and things mm -hmm. like that. And just geek mm -hmm. out about different styles and techniques and, and just like what food means to different cultures. Um, it's always been, it's always been a love of mine. Is there any like lifelong wisdom that you would take away from being a bartender? Hmm. Lifelong wisdom. 
or like a life lesson or something, something along those lines? I would say, I mean, it's, it's certainly not limited only to bartending, but just never, never take people on the fate, their face value. There's, um, you know, there's always so much to be, be found as you go in deeper and deeper relationship with people. And it doesn't need to be limited. There have been like many regulars that I've just been, you know, pushed into deep reflection by and even many drunk people <laughs> that have, you know, surprised me. I remember this one story when I was working at Harvard Square um, at Soloniki there. Uh, there was this rather drunk gentleman that had came in and um, I was drip feeding him water and telling him that it had, it was a gin and tonic, but it was just sparkling water. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he was talking to this one Harvard student and uh, I forget exactly the, the order of his sentence, but it was along the lines of um, he asked the student if he believed in God. Uh, and the student said, no, I don't, I don't believe in God. And the intoxicated gentleman says, well, he believes in you. And, uh, Deep. <laughs> yeah, I really like, I bet I, I needed to take a second after that one. <laughs> Cause you know, that's the last thing I was expecting to come out of his mouth. Uh, and it was the last, like I was, you know, you never, you never are prepared for the ways that God meets you in life. And, uh, that was just very much a God moment. And wow. yeah, so never take people on their face value. That's for sure. Yeah. So JT, tell us where you grew up and what that was like for you. You did mention you have a sister, so it'd be fun to hear like siblings and birth order and all that fun stuff. Yes. So, uh, my older sister and I, she's, she's about five years older than me, Rachel. Massachusetts. Um, like I said, both are parents are are and still are priests they're co-rectors in belmont and uh we moved i was born in new york um in in manhattan actually my parents were uh, uh grace church in greenwich village uh, when i was about three years uh before they moved moved here okay. um but yeah i, I spent that's the majority of my childhood in, in, in Belmont. And I mean, I loved it. It was great to be uh, situated so close to the city, but have, you know, access to green spaces and, uh, you know, spaces like Habitat in Belmont and, uh, and the various conservation lands and things like that. Um, but it certainly was an interesting dynamic. You know, <clears throat> there, um, there aren't a lot of people me uh in in belmont and cer certainly when i was was growing up there for for people who don't know i'm mixed race my dad is black and my mom is white um, <clears throat> and uh there was this kind of unfortunate term that was always thrown around called mm. belmont blacks mm. uh which uh, really didn't it wasn't great then and really hasn't now but uh there, 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 there just wasn't a lot of people of color, certainly, certainly at, at, at Belmont High School when I was there. Mm. Uh, so, and, and there was an inter interesting dynamic where you know, Belmont High School was part of the METCO program, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, Julia, but, yeah. but it um, brings in uh, um, 
inner city neighborhoods uh, like Dorchester and things like that, and allows them to go to public schools in places like Belmont. Uh, so they would come in on buses, their own schedule would go and, and pick them up, and then they would they would leave on their own bus schedule as well. That's a little separate from me, uh, and uh, kind of. So besides not totally, you know, getting me being this, you know, speaking the way that I do and, and doing the things that I did, uh, mm-hmm. it was always kind of an interesting dynamic. But, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, I would say that it was more difficult for my sister because she, uh, she was in Belmont Public Schools until fifth grade and then she went into private school. Uh, so she went to Lexington Christian Academy in and uh, ran, ran into the same issues in different ways, but more prevalent there for sure. Mm. Um, so because it was always, it was an interesting time. Is it, so just because I'm fr- not really from around here, mostly because the Christian Academy was like a mostly white space? Got it. Exactly, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, white, wealthy space. Which, I mean, that's the case in Belmont as well. Belmont. Uh, it's a little different now. White, wealthy space. And, you know, I was always very aware from a young age going to my friend's houses, these friend, these kids who are, their parents are contractors and things like that. And they've got these massive, massive homes. And uh, they've got like a home in Maine, home on the Cape. <clears throat> wow. And uh, you're like, I'm you know, a here, kid. <laughs> Here we were, the miners in the rectory. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was an interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah. Did you, I mean, was there a time that you remember realizing that you were mixed race or did you always know that growing up? Um, I think I was always, I certainly was always aware of it, like culturally. Um, I think that, you know, I certainly identified more with, with, you know, whiter communities having grown up in one mm-hmm. and spending the majority of my time with family, that being with my, with my mother's side, I definitely, I think, didn't view myself as a person of color. I, even though I knew that I was like, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's difficult to, to, to maneuver that, but, uh, I think that as I started to get older um, and started to just become more aware of the world and of the dynamics that exist in it, um, and you know, certainly in recent times, as things things are heading in the direction that they are, it's it's very it's apparent that that I was mixed race and and also looking back now in my childhood like I can I can recall moments um you know my mom would always be quick to say or would would often say like if any sort of particular situation went kind of strangely and just like relationships with friends or with teachers or things like that like I would always hear over here my mom talking to my dad mentioning racism and things like that and I would always be quick to be like no that's not the that's not what it was, but back now as an adult, like, there was a good, good deal of that um, growing up in Belmont. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, cool. I mean, thanks for sharing that with us. I, I really appreciate it.
Do you have a favorite Bible story? This could be like a Bible story, a Bible verse. It could be just like a biblical theme and why. Yeah. So that I definitely do. Um, so my, my mom, so Cheryl Miner, she is very active and prevalent in the Godly Play program uh, and uh, works basically in tandem with Jerome and the creator of it uh, to write stories, uh, she a bunch of the books. Um, she's written a bunch of the books. Um, she, I forget exactly what her position is now, but uh, she she certainly has a lot of say and a lot of um, a lot of hands in that game and was uh, had created an incredible godly play program at All Saints when she arrived and my kind of age was the first to go through it from the very beginning of godly play to the very end like the age the age gap that godly play covers um, so I a lot of my uh, most near and dear um, stories, uh, I kind of have them in my head in that format. But I remember just being so struck, like the, the in the particular point in the story, one of the sheep gets lost, and you know the good shepherd goes to each place that he had been with his with his flock to 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 find his sheep, and he goes to you know, the good green grass and the cool clear water. All these you know godly play probably play isms uh but then he even goes to like the bad places to the dark places um and you know with with godly play there's that period of wondering that always happens after each story and i just um in that period just really reflecting from a very early age about what the bad place was and the fact that that the good shepherd goes there comes to comes to his sheep and finds his sheep there and then takes him back home. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's like endless reflection to, to have about, yeah. about that story. Yeah. But, that's lovely. Yeah. I love that you brought godly play in. I was, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I love it. And I, you know, I'm actually, I'm trained as a godly play teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, a J project when I was in grad school, uh, not grad, when I was in undergrad, um, and uh, the fourth grade class or something like that. So nice. that was a really special moment. Nice, nice. Well, speaking of undergrad, tell us about your undergrad experience and also you have grad school experience, right? You have your master's? Yes. Yeah, tell us. Tell us all that. So, um, yeah, uh, both my degrees are in uh, classical percussion, uh, classical percussion, my bachelor's and my master's. Uh, and I did my degree at Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio, which uh, is this little liberal arts school uh, just about 25 minutes southwest of Cleveland. Uh, mm-hmm. So close enough to 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 a city to feel like you're not totally in the middle of nowhere but still very much in the middle of nowhere uh <laughs> we were surrounded on all sides by farms and uh very realize that about oberlin yeah so it's this it's a very interesting a prestigious t- name <laughs> yeah it's in the middle of nowhere right <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's so unusual you know as with as with, usually comes with with those areas, there are, are a lot of concerns 
conservative mindsets and beliefs. Uh, but then right smack dab in the middle of it is this like hotbed of liberal thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was very, it was, always, yeah. So that was, that was always something, you know, that a lot of the people who lived outside of town always had a lot of interesting feelings about us. Uh, but I loved my time there. Um, it was great to, uh, for, for a number of reasons, it was great to get away from, from New England uh, and have somewhere else. I think something that a lot of people talk about in the music world, especially those who grew up in, in this area, is there's this phenomenon that happens called the East Coast Blinders. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's when, you know, you're surrounded by all sides, by incredible music being made at an incredibly high level. And you almost get lulled into this false idea that this is like the only place that that's happening and that this is the Mecca of music as we know it. Um, And it's not to take away from any of the incredible music that's being made here, but high level everywhere, Mm -hmm. um, even in cornfields in Ohio. Um, So I think my musical journey to kind of be shaken awake um, from that from that idea. Um, it was also really important for me to kind of be thrown into such a hyper-liberal environment uh, and have a lot of uh, my ideas in a space where those conversations happen uh, in a critical way, but in a safe way. Um, and then also just like to have have a campus. I really wanted to go to any undergrad, NEC conservatory for my school. Uh, and I really wanted to go there for my undergrad and it was really heartbroken that I didn't get in. Um, oh. Oh, that's but cool. yeah, it's, it's actually, to kind of backtrack a little bit, um, I was for the last like two and a half years of my time in high school was at NEC prep um, and was in First, the Youth Symphony, which is their second tier orchestra. And then my senior year, I got into YPO, the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra tier. Mm-hmm. The people there, but one good percussionist friend of mine, Harrison, uh, we, we both were really waitlisted. And then he was taken off the waitlist. And ex- <laughs> so, heartbreak. <laughs> were, very... were you still friends? Oh, yeah. We're okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure, for sure. I love the guy. I have a lot of great memories from him. Yeah. Uh, with him playing in that orchestra and going on tour, things like that. Uh, but anyways, so I wouldn't have gotten the experience that I had um, at Oberlin. I certainly wouldn't have gotten the same focus that I had at Oberlin from my professors because right. something that's really unique is it's only undergrad. There's no grad program there. There's only like a handful. I think there's like an artist diploma program, which isn't really a grad program. And then I think for, uh, but they're really small departments, grad departments. So there's this dynamic at all schools with grad programs in the music world where you you show up and you you want to go to the school to study with you know teacher X Y or Z, but you end up studying with you know T A X Y or Z. <laughs> which you know they're they're incredibly incredible musicians like don't get me wrong like the, the people that i've that i've met that that teach 
um, and adjunct position grad students. They're they're incredible, and there's all there's more to learn from them than than that big you know big Kahuna teacher because they're a little more plugged into the industry as it is now mm-hmm. rather than as it used to be. But that was that was a super special environment to be in to be the main focus with with all my teachers academic related. Um, and um, I got a lot out of that. I got a lot out of that time. And I also, it was a unique environment because uh, co-mingling amongst, amongst different musical styles and musical people who are studying different musical styles is very much encouraged at Oberlin. Mm. Uh, so there are a lot of programs that exist to bring jazz musicians, classical musicians, for example, together. Um, and new um, early music musicians with other musicians together. and to really kind of open the eyes of these kids as much as possible. Cool. Because the reality is when you leave school, you got to be versatile. You're not just going to be doing yeah. you know, what you're studying in school. That's right. Exactly. So yeah, there were, there were a lot of really incredible things that I got out of it. And I'm really thankful for my time there. Um, but, and I also was gifted an incredible faith community there. Uh, I, I was really active um, at a Episcop- little small Episcopal church right outside of town um, and uh, was given an incredible faith mentor, uh, Father Brian, uh, my priest there. He really kind of became my father away from home. He would always come to all my concerts and he came to my- I love that. With, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he was a big part of my support network there for the four yeah. years. A lot of good things. Oh, it's like the Episcopal family, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. That's really neat. Yeah. I wanted to know if you had a favorite conductor and like what about them? Mm. Your favorite? I definitely do. And it would have to be Hugh Wolf, who was the conductor of um, the um, grad school orchestras at NEC. Um, he... He took no prisoners. That's uh, he, you know, he held he held us all at a very high standard and us to to perform at that standard. But he was there with us, with us to make sure that we did. And it wasn't this, you know, that that you know classic image of like the barking conductor just like screaming and yelling, which like there were times. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> when he he okay, went, is it true? Is it true? My re- recollection growing up is that percussionists often got yelled at, like like. Oh. What's that? Yeah, I mean the because the, it's definitely, like the mistake definitely. You make is 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 one. You've made only one mistake where you know the, everybody else has made mistakes constantly, but it's like the one big one. It's like in the one. Exactly. There's no. Yeah. There's no hiding. There's no hiding. That's right. And so percussionists just like get like scapegoated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Certainly would feel like that from time to you, but he still. But not the knowledge. No, it was a balance. Good. For sure. just his knowledge, his knowledge of the music, uh, whatever piece it was that we were playing was just endlessly expansive. Um, his style of conducting was, 
you know, beautiful and graceful, but also incredibly clear, which that is just such a fundamental thing, especially for those of us further back in the orchestra, because when you're playing with a large piece orchestra, the time delay from like hearing people in like front desk and the violins versus what you're doing and what you're hearing in the back. Like you could have 50 people between you and the conductor. Exactly. So, so it's so incredibly important for conductors to be clear. And so many conductors, especially, you know, younger ones that are still trying to find style and, you know, they, they spend time conducting in front of their different moves and things like that, where, where as like the important thing is to be a translator, like you're translating the score to the rest of the orchestra. That's the fundamental job of a conductor. Um, it's not to be up there looking like you're, you know, you're, you've got all the strings and you're making this thing. <laughs> no, you're creating an environment, right? You're creating an environment for musicians to do their job. And that means being the translator of the score, um, telling the rest of the orchestra what's going on at a particular moment, um, what what you need to be thinking about, where you need to be thinking towards. Um, you know. So he really he was all of that. He mm -hmm. knew that. and uh, I had had the opportunity to work with him briefly uh, in high school when we went on tour because um, they uh, the longtime conductor of the YPO had just been fired uh, the year before I arrived. So they were kind of, people were, were wearing different, the wearing that hat, different people were wearing that hat. Uh, but when we went on tour to Argentina, uh, he was the one that came with us. Nice. Uh, so nice. yeah, that's when I first fell in love with the guy, that's for sure. <laughs> but it was incredible to work with him again. Very cool, very cool. Well, my next question, you kind of segued perfectly into it, was tell us about your favorite tour. Yeah. I know there's probably huh. a lot, and that's hard to ask, a hard question to ask, but. I mean, there's not a ton, you know, but I would have to, it would have to be Argentina. It would have to be Argentina. That was um, just incredible on so many day? Yeah. Uh, we had performances. I think we had a couple days off. There's performances every night. Uh, we uh, with well, this is with the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra, the orchestra in the prep program at NEC. Um, to, for starters, we had the most incredible program with us. We were playing Symphony Fantastique, okay. and uh, I was playing, which is a, a barrel um, piece that I've always been in love with. He writes so well for percussion, mm. but especially for Tim. I was playing the first timpani part. There's two timpani mm. uh, part, and it, it was a dream come true. Uh, the writing in that in that piece is so fantastic. Um, I listen, and I just get lost in the music and in the orchestration. Um, but we also, I mean, it, it was very much. Not only was it for us, it was also like a vacation for us. So they had hired um, a tour company that was always on the buses with us wherever we were driving. Uh, so we were always having things pointed out to us, nice. different, 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 you know, 
um, monuments, uh, things like that. Um, and we had tons of incredible food experiences that the tour company had organized for us. Um, and just experiences and yeah, we got to go to uh, a gaucho ranch and ride horses, cool. uh, which, you know, to those of you who are listening, don't tell the authorities. We had to, <laughs> when we were re-entering the game, very close on the planes and we we're like, do not write that you were near livestock. <laughs> oh, how funny. Oh, how funny. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so <laughs> we had <laughs> just, the most incredible every single night um so we were in argentina uh we were in rosario uh i mean we were in uh buenos aires in argentina okay. for a couple nights we were in rosario for a few nights uh we finished up in Chascomos, which Chascomos is home to one of the sistema orchestras which i'm not sure if you're familiar with that program mm-hmm. uh, but el sistema is a south american program that brings um, kids from impoverished communities together um, on a particular weekend to learn music and perform it. Uh, so uh, one of the more well-known um, alums of that program is Gustav Hunter of the LA Phil, uh, who's well-known for his expressive hair when he can uh, really something else. Um, but uh, yeah, so in Chascomos, uh, we came there in this uh, old, um, somewhat abandoned concrete football stadium performance. They, that the orchestra, their orchestra had prepared a program. Our orchestra had our program, uh, but there was one piece that we had both prepared that we were going to play together, and that was um, from uh, Bernstein's Candide. Can- uh, so. Yeah, we got we got to play that with them, and you know, I think about I think about that experience to this day. I mean, you know, the majority of them, pretty much all of them, didn't speak any English whatsoever. Mm. Um, but we were able to come together and rehearse and perform this incredibly complex complex piece mm-hmm. and play off of each other and play with each other, and it just was this incredible incredible example of like the like transcendence of music mm-hmm. above um, as language uh, form of human expression that can be understood by all people um, so that was that was something else that was that was quite the experience that is really cool yeah. really cool um, uh, should I ask more about your What else? What else? Uh, anything else about orchestra that I should ask? That would make. Um, that kind of covered it. I feel like those were my. Those certainly were my stories. Okay. Um. The last question that I have is that I have written is. What has been nourishing to you or to your spirit during pandemic times? What have you kind of found to sustain you? Hmm. Well, the easy answer would be the work that I've been doing at the food pantry. Um, 
you know, one of the biggest and most easy to, to understand and realize effects of this pandemic has been uh, the you know vast increase of food insecurity um, in all communities around the world. Um, and it's just, it's grown exponentially. Um, it's almost uncomprehensible um, how bad the situation is for so many people. Um, and to be able to be, um, you know, a part of this movement in Massachusetts to, to answer that uh, um, with a, you know, strong and robust, no thank you, <laughs> uh, has been um, absolutely incredible. Uh, just to, you know, every other week, uh, go and see the faces of these folks um, who need so much help, um, so much more than we're able to give them. Um, but at least, you know, and see them and, and say, I hear you. And, you know, you're not being heard. Um, and we're here for you uh, has been a real, uh, it's been real life giving for me. So endless thanks to St. James to uh, have been given the opportunity to, to be a part of that. Um, yeah. So, um, on a less heavy note, uh, <laughs> it's been really special to, to have so much time with my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I, uh, was initially unemployed, um, I was spending almost every single night over there, uh, for dinner um and uh it has it's just been so priceless to have so much time just be around them and reflect on what's going on in the world with them you know we decided very early on that we were going to be in the same bubble uh uh yeah just i would you know i'd go over there and uh, i'd start dinner with my mom we, we would cook dinner together every night um and just talk about about things and it hasn't that hasn't I haven't had that since you know high school yeah, <laughs> because yeah college and then grad school you know even though I was closer I was living in the city um, and uh, it's not not to say that our relationship was ever damaged but it was certainly a little disconnected uh, but to reconnect with them and just you know again I keep saying this but just reflect on everything that's going on mm -hmm. with them that, that's been something that's been really healing and grounding you mm -hmm. know reground my story and who I am and where I come from um, after these years away doing the various things that I have um, just to kind of yeah re reconnect with the line that is my story rather than having it be broken in different spots. So that's yeah. been really special. Yeah, yeah. Well, JT, before we let you go, I always ask folks if they have something to say to St. James's community. And I know that's a big question, but what do you have for us? <laughs> We're here to, to, to listen. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Again, like I said, it's just thank you for, you know, putting putting your in me to to spearhead uh, the the food pantry. Let's just have endless thanks for for the gift in my life. 
Um, and I'm incredibly to be returning the food pantry to, to 1991 Mass Ave soon. Um, and, you know, re reconnect as much as, as much as this pandemic world allows us uh, in a, in a physical world. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly excited for what these next few months will hold for the, for, for us and for our community. Transition. Awesome. JT, thank you again for making time. I, I really appreciate it. I know our, our little community appreciates it and yeah. It's my pleasure. Did you, I now this is, I'm not going to put this in there, but did you, is there a, a section in the orchestra that you tended to like make friends with besides like, besides people who were already percussionists? <laughs> um, brass players. Yeah. I was, that's brass players and percussionists. percussionists and brass are always friends. Yeah. We're always kindred spirits, right? Cause we just yeah. went out. <laughs> <laughs> Just one loud. We're in the back of the orchestra. <laughs> exactly. We're in the back of the orchestra together. We're blowing each other. You know, you got French horn and players. With spit. The friggin' spit right there. <laughs> I always had to remind myself it's condensation. It's condensation. I know. <laughs> <laughs> <That's so crazy. laughs>